This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. So, James, yesterday on the podcast, we talked about this trickle of letters going into Graham Brady. How does the situation look 24 hours later? Any better? Well, there's still a kind of fairly steady trickle of letters going in. There is now uh, an increasing view that this is when, not if, in terms of a confidence ballot. I mean, there is an interesting division. The the, the thing to realise is this is not some coordinated plot. There is not some mastermind sitting with a spreadsheet saying, today you publish your letter this afternoon you do yours that actually creates a situation one, one, one former minister who very much wants thinks the Tory party needs a new leader and they're like well I'm telling I'm saying to people don't put your letter in until after these by-elections because if you put your letter in before and you have the vote as soon as parliament comes back from recess Boris Johnson is more likely to win it I think the problem for the Tory party is it is fundamentally split on this leadership question. I think if there is a no-confidence vote, which I think is now more likely than not, those you talk to those who know the parliamentary party best, they think the most likely result is that Boris Johnson wins it, but by a narrower margin than Theresa May did in 2018. And that is obviously going to leave the Tory party deeply divided. I think one of the other problems is it's quite obvious that the next election the Tory party is going to have to fight on two fronts. In prosperous Tory seats in the South, they're going to have to deal with a renewed challenge from the Liberal Democrats it's kind of emboldened by lots of tactical voting. And then you've in those newly won constituencies from Labour, they'll have to try and hold on to them. And there is no agreement in the Tory party about who is the best candidate to deal with both of those challenges simultaneously. Mm. And Fraser, if they come at the king and they miss, he'll be safe for another year. Well, that's what Theresa May thought. Ultimately, she wasn't safe for another year. If it turns out that a good chunk of the parliamentary party wants him gone, it becomes pretty difficult to win a general election after that. So the real politique is that it would probably it would be the end for him. Now, you might argue that he said he'd basically he would be you'd have to send in the SAS to get him out of number 10 voluntarily without an election, but I don't really think that that's a realistic case. Right, it's funny. I'm actually more I think it's more likely to go now than I did back in January and February. Back then I just thought this was kind of noise from relatively young Tory MPs who didn't really know what they were doing, hadn't really thought it through. Now I think there is a sense of ennui, exasperation, and also just out-and-out despair, because there are so many Tories who think of next election is lost anyway, but they just simply wouldn't care. So I think James is correct in his analysis in the, the in his column for the new magazine, that this could now be something that happens by accident rather than design. When you say he might go, do you mean because of Partygate in the short term? Well, it's not so much that. It's the it's the party. It was a combination of, of last week's um, the the bailout, the windfall tax, the basic sense that you've got a prime minister who, who whose own personal authority has been so badly damaged by Partygate. He's got a big majority. But what's he doing with that majority? What would Labour government really be doing much different than him in the current situations? But he's coming out. He's doing relatively 
sort of silly, trivial things like bringing back imperial measures while taking the tax burden to the highest in 72 years and while spending like a drunken Keynesian. So the the idea is you've got somebody who is basically wedded to big state conservatism, which is very difficult for your average voter to really separate from the offering that Keir Starmer will be making at the next general election. Now, by the way, I don't go along with all the pessimism. I think that, I mean, Tony Blair was 40 points, percentage points ahead of um, John Major at the peak of New Labour. Now, that's when you know a government defeat is inevitable. Right now, Labour still struggles to get more than six or seven points ahead of the Conservatives, and Boris Johnson has proven himself able to come back from the political dead time and time again. But I do think now, simply because we're out of the realm of there being ringleaders and organisers, we're now into the realm of waking up one morning and finding out with four more random people who've decided to put their names forward. And and right now we're doing analysis of a spectator to find out, is there a pattern behind these people? Are they, for example, Remainers? Are they people with Lib Dems in their constituency? Is there a North or South bias? To see if there is a trend or a pattern because right now there doesn't seem to be very much of one. And what we haven't really seen so far are the kind of the MPs of tomorrow, the leaders of tomorrow, because right now we've got the has-beens and the never-gonna-bees who are uniting to say that Boris Johnson's useless. Now, that is, these are people whose prospects are anyway, sort of, you've got no, they've got nothing to lose. It's when you start to see the next Chancellor of the Exchequer, as it were, people with their careers in front of them start to do it. So that's why Tom Jugendhat has been named as a potential successor here. He's basically never had a government job. He's chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, a long-standing Boris Johnson critic. But, and he has said, he hasn't quite said he's put in his letter to Graham Brady, but he's hinted that he has. Um, now he is, when you get more people like him, people who are relatively young and have got the careers ahead of them, saying that they've decided Boris Johnson's got to go, that's when you start to take it a lot more seriously. So we're into the, I wouldn't quite call it sudden death territory, but it's a lot unpredictable. And when the Sue Gray report came out this time last week, my first reaction was, okay, that Boris Johnson's safe now, because the report was a lot milder than it could have been or arguably should have been. But that hasn't really stopped the threat to him. It simply changed the threat to him. So we're looking at a threat of a different, less organised kind, but it's no less um, potent, I think, because of that. Mm. And James, meanwhile, the EU has been wrangling over um, a deal about oil sanctions on Russia. They reached one last night. Can you tell us what it says? Yeah, it basically exempts pipeline oil which to deal with Hungary's objection. So it's only, only oil that goes in ships that is affected by this. And obviously the EU is not going further in terms of getting off Russian gas. And I think what you're seeing here is an increasing tension on sanctions and within the Western Alliance more broadly, you know, you've got Eastern, uh, you've got various of the more hawkish Eastern European and Baltic states saying, look, why are we not taking more action to try and cut funding to Putin's war machine? And then you've got states like Hungary saying, well, actually, we don't, we're not prepared to take any economic pain on this front. And then you've got other EU states saying, well, not quite so fast. And I think there is a, there is a tension here over what to do. And then there is also, I think, uh, separate from the sanctions discussion, there is, as we've talked about in the magazine, there is a broader debate about how the West wants to see this conflict end. Is it, as the Brits and the Eastern Europeans and the Bolts indicate, everything going back to where it was before the 24th of February? So that, that doesn't mean that Russia is uh, being forced out of Crimea, uh, which it's illegally annexed, but Russia is going back to where its position was before this latest invasion. 
or is there the possibility of some kind of negotiated settlement? And that the, there is beginning to be some tensions on the Western side about that. And then the other question is, you know, how quickly are Western arms delivered to whether they can enable Ukraine to not only withstand the Russian assault in the Donbass, but also to reclaim some of the coastal territory which Ukraine so needs if it is to be economically successful as a state. Fraser, are sanctions working? Because in last week's Spectator, we ran quite an intriguing article by Wolfgang Mauncher, who looks at some of the quite compelling arguments that actually sanctions are making Russia richer. Yeah, and they're bit, what's happening is that the oil price is going up, so Putin's balance of payments is surging. The amount of money Russia is getting is really quite substantial. And the Russian ruble is now standing at something like a six or seven year high against the dollar and the euro. So I think the the deal with the EU did last night looks very different depending on whose press you read. The British press this morning, a lot of it, has taken the sort of the EU has collectively agreed this big sign of unity. The German press says the exact opposite. Die Welt this morning um, says they've got an intriguing report saying that this that what w- what it sees is that the EU started with a position of unity against Putin against Ukraine but has now fallen into a position of division. Divelt says that, I'm going to um, quote here from a slightly dodgy German translation, but um, the illusion of unity has been shattered. The EU Commission and the member states got bogged down so much in the small details of the EU internal market and haggling over national interests that the atmosphere between individual states was positively poisoned. Now, what Divelt is saying here is that the caveat they've agreed, that it doesn't affect pipelines, really only affects one pipeline. That's the the Druzba pipeline. And it's um, southern tube supplies Ukraine, Slovakia, the Czech Republic and Hungary, who've pretty much broken then from the rest of the EU because they're going to keep taking the oil. So what had been a united European response is now turning into more of a division. And you're also seeing that and the diplomatic messages. We're getting certainly France and Italy who are pressing for an early um, cessation to hostilities to get business up and running. That contrasts very much with the Baltic states. Katie Bowles interviewed Lithuania's foreign minister last week. He was saying, he's, the Lithuanians are very alarmed how often Macron's on the phone to Putin, thinking if you want to tell him he's isolated, then don't call him the whole time. Lithuanians and the Baltics are thinking, look, we've got to keep a united front here. We can't be cutting Putin some slack. We don't want to draw a compromise where he takes off half of Ukraine. We've got to keep... So you can already see Western unity descend into two different camps, perhaps three different camps. And I think on closer detail, the EU oil deal will certainly demonstrate the fracturing rather than the cohesion of the EU member states. Fascinating. And James, back home then in Westminster, we obviously know that there have been plans to cut around 91,000 civil servants um, as a way of cutting back the the civil service after Brexit and after COVID. Katie Balls um, first revealed that they were considering, the government was considering pausing the civil service fast stream with the graduate scheme that they have. And last night we hear that they have finally done it. Yeah, and I think there is a certain amount of um, cabinet unhappiness about this. Lots of ministers' private offices are staffed by fast streamers. And I think the worry is this, which is you're missing out on a whole year's worth of graduate recruits. If they go and work in the private sector, frankly, the civil service won't be able to afford to hire them back in three, five years, seven years' time. And, and so, you know, you're missing all of those people. I mean, there's a kind of feeling that this... I think Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is the, the minister pushing this, feels that you have to have some kind of, you know, statement freeze if you're going to cut numbers. I think other people think, well, 
these are the last numbers that you should be trying to cut. And then I think there is also another question, which is, you can obviously reduce the source of takeout to some extent by making things more efficient, automating processes and all that stuff. But fundamentally, how much do you want the state to do? And I think this is, comes back to what, to what some of what Fraser was saying earlier, which is, at the moment there seems to be a contradiction, which is, you want this slimmed-down civil service, but you're not talking about the state stopping doing X, Y, and, and, and Z. And so that, I think, is the problem, which is, you know, yes, as people always like to point out, you know, when, when Britain had a huge empire and the entire civil service fitted into Somerset House, right? But the state did far, far less than Now, I don't think anyone's talking about going back to a state that small. But the point is, what do you want the state to do? And if you want the state to do lots and lots of things, then you are going to inevitably end up with quite a large civil service. Fraser, what do you make of this? Because recently in the in the magazine, we ran an article talking about all the ways in which civil servants are not working as hard or as productively as people in the private sector necessarily are. Do you think they could be finding other savings? Well, this comes down to the problem we are talking about earlier, how for all of this talk, Boris Johnson has ended up an instinctive big government conservative with a government which has way outgrown its usefulness. And of course, such machines require lots of people. So it's slightly odd to see Boris Johnson thinking, hang on, where did all these civil servants come from? Well, they came because he's massively expanded what government does. Uh, I was talking to a minister who was saying that he or she, I suppose I shouldn't really give away the identity, did an audit to find out what all the department does. And even the civil servants couldn't give a list because it was just so vast. And the minister was saying, look, this is why we're in such trouble. The government is simply out of control. Even we as ministers don't even know what all the government's departments are doing. Now, as Katie revealed um, a couple of weeks ago, the civil service fast stream was sort of hovered over a threat to the prime minister. You know, do you really want to um, stop the recruitment of a thousand people? But even you were accepted to the fast stream, weren't you, Cindy? Yeah. And we saved you. second go, so it was, it's not easy to get into. <laughs> right, but you've got an even better job now. But, you know, the, 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 the thing is, people of your calibre would otherwise be going into the civil service. And, of course, everybody who want, works in government wants to think that the best and the brightest are coming in. Sure, we're going to cut the head count, but do we really need to stop the great brains coming in as well? In fact, if you look at a lot of the permanent secretaries, they started out in the fast stream. It tends to have been not just getting the civil servants, but people who've gone on to be the most effective members of that team. So this was during a cabinet meeting pointed out to Boris Johnson, you know, if you want to cut the civil service, you're going to get rid of the fast stream. Almost, do you really dare to do this, Prime Minister? But he's gone ahead and thought, okay, yeah, let's do it. I don't care. Let's suspend it for a year or perhaps more. Now, we should remember when David Cameron did a civil service consolidation, they tried to do that via a recruitment freeze rather than firing people. Of course, firing people is politically the worst way of doing it politically because you need to give people marching orders. You need to say, okay, this person is not very effective. It's time for you to go. Now, you could argue that's a way more efficient way of doing it to identify the least effective members of an organization and whack them. For example, in the free school movement in Sweden, there is one school chain that identifies the bottom 5% of least effective teachers and sacks them every single year. Now, (laughs) it sounds quite mean, right? But there are organizations... Don't get any ideas, Fraser. (laughs) But if you were running a company, that's probably how you would do it. You would keep your recruitment scheme going while trying to identify the less effective members of the team or the less effective government departments and just um, move people around. But if you're going to try to do it the politically painless way, in other words, by staff freezing, then yes, Fast Dream does have to take the bullet. 
James and Fraser, thanks very much and thank you very much for listening. Now, for this week only, to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, we're also offering you the chance to subscribe to 10 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £1. Not only that, but we'll also send you a commemorative tea towel to mark this historic moment. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash jubilee to subscribe now. Hurry though, this offer ends next Monday. Thank you for listening to this episode of Coffee House Shots. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And to keep up to date with the world of Westminster, sign up for Unrivaled Insight and Analysis with Isabel Hardman's Evening Blend newsletter, delivered to your inbox every weekday evening. Sign up at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash evening hyphen blend.